0: And we're going to be reading there this evening, if you're using the church Bible, the passage is on page 638, page 638, Proverbs chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 20. And this is the sixth of a series of ten talks that form the preface to uh, the book of Proverbs, and in each of them it is a father. uh, They're kind of model talks for dads to give to their sons at some stage or another in the uh, son's life. I'm sure somebody could write a Ph.D. thesis on uh, how long were you to wait between talks and what age did the children in Israel get these talks but they're full of interest. And this is one of the briefer ones, chapter 4 and verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left, turn your foot away from evil. One of the great things about the book of Proverbs that we've begun to see is that its opening chapters uh, lay foundations for us, and then the chapters, last two thirds of the book, give us many pictures of how those principles will work out in practice. I think it's important for us to understand that this book is called not the book of promises, but the book of proverbs. So, the proverbs are not giving us uh, gold standard promises. They are giving us pictures of how life actually works out And what the father here in Israel is encouraged to instruct his son, and doubtless perhaps mums sat down with their daughters and uh, transposed all this into the language of teenage girls, is to build in foundations of godliness, of spiritual consecration, of what the book of Proverbs calls wisdom, To enable their children when they meet the situations that are described in the one or two verse proverbs later on that we tend to think more of as proverbs, they'll be able to negotiate these situations as though they had been in them before. I think I said at the beginning of the series uh, that my mother's words often come back to me. Uh, as a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, when she would say, there is no substitute for experience, Sinclair. And although I never dared say it, I used to scream inside, that's not fair, because I don't have any. But what the book of Proverbs does for a youngster in the covenant family, in the covenant community, what it does for us as young Christians is, in a sense, give us advance experience of what we have not yet experienced. It pictures a a whole variety of different situations uh, and does so in graphic ways that fire our imagination in order to touch our affections, in order to give us wisdom, so that when we are in analogous situations, similar situations, meet similar people, uh, we're able to think, I, I have in a sense been here before. I know what God's wisdom teaches me to do. It's been my experience in life as a minister moving from church to church, that there are always people when a new minister arrives who go to the new minister to kind of tell them what the deal is here. And uh, in my experience, when they've left the conversation with me and I've sensed they seem to be satisfied with me. Uh, As the the door closes behind them, I, I have often thought this, you have no idea, dear brother or dear sister, I've met you before. You were in my previous church. You were in the church before then. And you see the fact that you have met them in a different guise helps you to recognize the dynamics that are going on. And this is what the book of Proverbs sets out to do. And in these these opening talks, we've come really to the centerpiece in this little section. And in the centerpiece of this centerpiece, it's verse 23 that I want us to focus on this evening, where the father says to the son, And we remember that this is really God's Word coming to the child through the Father's application of the Scriptures. Here, he says, is the key issue. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the issues of life. Uh, It's not only a verse at the center of these several talks but it's uh, fairly evident from the language that's used here, it is at the center of a life of godliness. It's at the center of negotiating this very complicated world in a way that will bring pleasure to God and blessing to us. As uh, I'm sure it's often been said when people have preached on these words, the heart of the matter is always a matter of, of what happens in your heart. And I want us to try and think about this uh, this evening in three different ways. And the first is to ask the, the obvious question that, in a sense, you already know the answer to, I'm fairly sure. What does the Bible mean when it speaks about the heart? There are almost a thousand references to the heart in the Bible. And only in a few of those references is the author speaking about that part of the anatomy that we call the heart. And we're familiar with this because we we use the term heart in similar ways. Sometimes we are speaking about the, the, uh, the function of the body. But often we are using that as a picture, as a metaphor for something very deep within ourselves when when we respond to a situation and say i'll do it with my whole heart we're not describing some physiological function that's going to take place we're speaking about something that in a sense lies beneath the surface of our lives lies beneath Our behavior patterns goes right down into the fundamental drives of our lives, the very core of our being, who we really are. And in fact, we've encountered the word heart used in this way several times already. For example, in chapter 2 and verse 2, the son is encouraged to treasure up the father's words to make his ear attentive to wisdom and incline his heart to understanding. Now, we tend to think about the mind as the instrument through which we understand things, but here the Scriptures speak about the mind as the heart, the deep-seated mental processes that go on within our being that are very mysterious and I think it's right for us to recognize that. Um, I've I've often, I suppose, like other ministers and preachers, said to congregations, now you need to think about this. But if somebody were to ask you uh, at the end of the service, can you teach me how to think? That would be a much more difficult question to answer, wouldn't it? It's one thing to impart information, but how do you think in order to gain understanding? It's a very deep and mysterious process. Why is it that some people think this way and other people think that way? Why is it that some people can understand some things but be be completely incomprehending about other things? That's part of the, the mystery of our lives. It's not explained simply by the electricity of the brain it got something to do with the very core of our being. And similarly, later on in chapter 2 in verse 10, wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. And you see in that parallel, heart and soul are seen almost as two sides of the same coin. And again in chapter 3, my son, verse 1, don't forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Now, it's it's the will that keeps the commandments of God. But you see here how the heart is being spoken of as though our, our volitional powers, what we will. We're all part of this uh, deep, mysterious reality that we call ourselves or our soul. And the same in chapter 3 and verse 5. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord in chapter 2 and then trust in the Lord with all your heart, with all your heart. And then you think about uh, Jesus in his discussion about the greatest commandment, saying uh, to the lawyer, yes, indeed, Deuteronomy chapter 6 was the right passage for you to go to. We've to love the Lord our God with all our heart. And I think the way Jesus explains that suggests that when he speaks about the heart, he means, yes, with your soul and your mind and your strength, and probably the best simple description of what the Bible means here is, the, is in the words that, that Peter uses. I remember in First Peter when he's, when he's talking about how, how ladies dress when they come to church. It's not a place to show off your pearls and your, your precious gems. Because what the Lord really loves is the hidden person of the heart. The hidden person of the heart. If it made sense to us, who you really are inside. I wonder if you're like me. I kind of like people who have horns. In this sense, I, I like people that I can kind of feel I've got a grip of who they really are. And I always find it difficult to handle people who, who seem to be kind of covered in some kind of slimy oil. That like you, you never really know where you are with them because why? Because you don't know who they really are you can't predict what they're going to do next. Now, sometimes that's good, but a, com- a person that you cannot trace a, a trajectory of life from, uh, that's, that's not something that Scripture encourages. And so this is, this is what the Bible means when it, when it speaks about the heart. It's, it's who we really are, it, the way we think with our minds, our minds. The way we feel with our affections, the way we desire, the way we will, uh, this is the hidden person of the heart. Um, you remember how some of you know how the Messiah begins with us and begin this way. It begins with the, 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 the opening music, but the first words that are spoken are from Isaiah chapter 40, aren't they? First words that are sung. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. And uh, in our versions, it's, uh, it's speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. But what Isaiah actually wrote was, speak upon the heart of Jerusalem. It is, yes, it is true, Isaiah is is speaking about a situation of great distress where God's Word will come with great tenderness. But the really important thing is it gets to the heart, gets to this hidden person of the heart. And that, of course, is always what the Word of God is for. Um, That's what preaching is for, that the goal of preaching is to, what God wants to do is to speak right into our hearts, uh, not just to give us information. Uh, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? If, if all a sermon an exposition was, was information, whoever's preaching would be as well to type it out, uh, make his little corrections, make sure his spelling was right, and uh, as, you, as you came in, we could sing, we could pray, we could read Scripture… And then you could have it on the way out. Um,
1: Isn't
0: that true? So, why is preaching so important? Well, for the very reason that, that Isaiah's preaching was important. Because God wants to have a heart to heart with us. Which is why if your experience is anything like mine, it's in the ministry of the Word that God reaches your heart in, in, in ways nothing else reaches. Um, do they still have that old ad for domestos, you know, that reaches the parts that other cleaners don't get to? Oh, forgive me for the illustration, but that, that's what preaching does when God's Word is spoken. And you see, here is the Father, and he remembers the words in Deuteronomy chapter 6, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And then the Father is commanded, make sure you're speaking this to the heart of your children every time you can, because you are the minister in your own house. Just as when we find ourselves under the ministry of the Word as the family of God. This is is what happens. Your experience is mine. You, You sit and you listen to the Word of God and there are times when you say, Lord, no one else in the world knew this about me to which your Word is now applying. This is... This is, I think this is one of the reasons why uh, Jesus uses the illustration of the farmer sowing seed when he speaks about his own preaching. He's throwing seed around. But what happens when the seed falls into the ground? All kinds of different things happen. Birds of the air snatch it away. Or it gets choked by thorns and thistles. Or it hits down into the rocky substratum. Or it works down into the good soil. And so this is is why the heart is so important. It's so important that my heart be captured for the Lord so that that when He speaks to me in His Word, there's a sensitivity in me. uh, of responsiveness. Um, You know this was John Calvin's motto. You know this, don't you? I offer my heart to you, Lord, promptly and sincerely. The Lord, in fact, this is one of the great statements later on in Proverbs. My son, give me your heart. So, the heart is the hidden person, the, the fundamental person I am, uh, being shaped and molded by the Word of God into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. I, mean, I love to think about the possibility that when we meet one another in the, in the resurrected life, the first thing we may say to each other is something like this. You know, I never fully grasped that's who you really were. But now I see. You see, all I saw was all I saw was your inadequacies. What I what I didn't see was the obstacles you had overcome by God's grace to become what you were. And now I see. I like to think. I th- I like to think of it this way. Not that that's at all relevant. Utterly irrelevant, but nevertheless I do like to think about it this way, that the resurrection body is the secret person of the heart turned inside out inside out so that in a sense we'll say to each other, you know, I knew you for years, but now I'm now I really know you. I know your heart. And if this is true of ourselves in relationship, this is, this is of the essence of human relationship. My friends, if, if you can't grasp this, then you're kind of brain dead relationally. This is of the essence of relationship, isn't it? That I can open my heart to somebody. That I can have a heart-to-heart with them. That's simply simply a reflection in we who are the image of God, of, of the relationship that there is within the blessed Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, no secrets from one another. Heart to heart in blessed unity, and then desiring to be heart to heart in blessed fellowship with us. And uh, this is why uh, the father says to the son in words that simply echo the words that the father says to all his children, my son, it's your heart I want. Very, very core of your being, the hidden person of the heart. I want all of you. Now, if that's what the heart is, Why does this particular verse, and actually, in a way, it's the leitmotif, the the theme of the whole book of Proverbs, if that's what the heart is, why why is God so insistent that we should guard our hearts? Verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance. It means guard your heart, protect your heart. And, and do it with all vigilance. Watch over it with, with all watching out for it is almost what he's saying here. Protect it. Well, why is that so important? Well, he, he gives us uh, the central reason in the same verse, doesn't he? Because from it flow the springs of life. It's what happens in the heart that determines everything about us. Interestingly, it, it determines our opinions, doesn't it? Um, we understand we are not unbiased in our opinions. I mean, people tell us, oh, I'm just, I'm just telling things the way they are. But nobody is ever telling things. The only, the only one who can tell things they really, the way they really are is God Himself. No, we tell things the way we see it. And often we don't reflect on the fact that the, that the way we see it brings into play all our little biases and prejudices, everything that's in our heart. And because the Scriptures speak about the hidden person of the heart, very often you see that person as hidden from ourselves. That's the problem. The person who says, I know myself, is actually an ignoramus. The only one who really knows you is God. Uh, The great Augustine, one of the great intellectuals. Now, I've mentioned two of David's favorite theologians in the same sermon, Calvin and Augustine, says at one point I've become a puzzle to myself. I don't really understand myself. Only God understands me. And that's the reason why that the Lord is saying to us, that's why you, you, need, you need to keep your eye on your heart. You, you need to watch it, and you need to guard it, because everything about your life is going to flow out of that inner person who you really are. And of course, what's implied by, by the, the verbal structure of these words is, that lots of things can go wrong with your heart. Lots of things can go wrong with your heart. Now, that's true physically. I, I was speaking uh, recently to a, a really a close, long-time friend. The fact that he's an American simply enhances the fact that he's a long-time friend who's, who's a cardiologist. And I, uh, I said to him, so so in general terms, in layman's terms... Um, how many categories of things that can go wrong do you tend to think of? You know, how many, how many big categories of things going wrong with the heart are they? So, well, there are about a dozen and then underneath, you know, there are all kinds of subdivisions filling up these. Those of you who are, who are uh, doctors filling up these big books, how you can remember all these Latin terms is, of course, beyond the grasp of we ordinary mortals. Um, I looked through every single reference to the heart in the Old Testament this week. There are about 850 of them. Just by the by, there are about six times as many references to the heart in the Old Testament as there are in the New Testament. So, don't ever make the mistake of thinking that New Testament faith is heart faith and Old Testament faith is simply superficial. No, Old Testament faith is always a matter of the heart. Um, And in those references, this is a very conservative estimate. I started making lists and then I turned over the page and I started making another list. And then I turned over the page starting to another list, of the things that can go wrong with your heart. Things that can go wrong with your heart. And the, the Scripture, I, I, you know, time's short. I didn't think, what 12 categories can I put this into? Maybe I will later this week. But what really, what really struck me was... Therefore, how significant is this exhortation to guard your heart if there are 50 different things that can go wrong with it? And some of those are just familiar Bible statements to you, aren't they? You can have a hard heart. You can have a, you can have a, you can have a heart just as you can have a physical heart where there's a, there's a hardness creeps in to, to the, the cardiovascular system. And you can have a, a downcast heart, a disconsolate heart. Um, and as I mentioned these, you, you can think of others. You can have a, you can have a hypocritical heart. You can have a good heart, but you can have a covetous heart, and you can have a stubborn heart. You can have a disquieted heart. You can have a lustful heart. And this week, you will meet those hearts, won't you? Um, you, you, you know, I, some of you know I've never done an honest day's work in my life and i've i've lived by faith on the basis of other people's works and i'm very grateful for those works and i haven't lived in the workaday world but if you work in the workaday world you're going to meet mister or missus or miss lustful heart you're also going to meet mister or missus or miss downcast heart you're going to meet stubborn heart you could write your own Pilgrim's Progress, couldn't you, just on the basis of these different descriptions the Scripture gives us of what can happen with the heart. Let me just focus for a moment or two on, on some of these. The Bible speaks about having a deceitful heart. That's, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, This actually is one of the most important principles that we can get hold of as Christians in the world, that the heart is deceitful above all things, and it's self-deceiving. And you will meet Mr. Mrs. or Ms. self-deceiving heart during the week, where the real problem is that the, the deceit is caused by the self Um, actually the psychologists speak about this the psychologists say it's actually possible uh, by a series of processes to be convinced that you are not guilty of something of which you are guilty and actually that's the most fundamental self-deceit that exists that I'm not really guilty and how, how do I know that? because when When God points the finger at you and says you are guilty, what's your tendency? The tendency is him, not me. I'm as good as anybody else. Just try it. Just tell somebody during the week you are a guilty sinner. And a very small proportion of them will give you a bear hug and say I'm so grateful somebody has told me the truth about myself. We deceive ourselves and that's why we have got to watch over our hearts to keep a guard in our hearts and, and not least as Christians. Uh, Hebrews speaks about this, doesn't it? About how important it is to keep this watch over our hearts lest we be deceived. Now, what do we do to keep that kind of watch over a heart that has a tendency to self-deception? Well, we need to bring the undeceptions of the Scriptures to bear upon the deceptions of our hearts. That's one of the things the Bible's for in the Christian life. That's one of the great things that the the myriad of proverbs that follow these opening chapters, that's what the father is doing for the son when he passes on these proverbs. He's saying, son, do you see the number of ways in which it's possible for you? to have a deceived heart. And when you see that in Scripture, then you're able to bring that to bear upon the way in which you view yourself and to expose those heart deceptions. And then there's a very different uh, condition of the heart that Scripture speaks of that is not uncommon. Um, It's... um, it's becoming more and more evident in the world, and I think it may be becoming more and more evident in the, in the church among Christians. It's the self condemning heart. So, isn't this interesting that on the one hand, this is, this is why this is such important teaching? On the one hand, I can have a self deceiving heart, but on the other hand, uh, we read about it every single week in the newspapers nowadays. Youngsters in uh, our own time who engage in self-harming. Now, part of the reason for that is their hearts condemn them. That's why they do it. Because there is, a, there is this self-condemnation And the same is true of us as Christians. Of course, the devil is behind it all the time. The devil's desire is to produce a sense of self-condemnation in our hearts. Because self-condemnation hides from our vision the righteousness, the forgiveness, the joy of pardon that Jesus Christ gives to us. And, and the fact of the matter is, of course, the devil turns us in upon ourselves because what saves us is not in ourselves. What saves us, pardons us, brings us forgiveness, deliverance, release, joy, its all in Jesus Christ. When my eyes are turned inward towards myself, I can't see Jesus Christ. I'm blinded to Him. Remember how John speaks about this in his first letter. So this is interesting. This is, this is not a 21st century problem. This is a first century problem. Brothers and sisters, he says, when, when our hearts condemn us. So he knew about this. I do you think he knew about this? I mean, jo, John's one of the apostles who I mean, he was on, the, he was on the, the good end of the spectrum of apostles, wasn't he? Did he, did he think of this because he, he'd obviously spoken to Simon Peter about how he'd gone out into the darkness of the Jerusalem night and wept bitterly because his heart was condemning him for the way in which he had denied the Lord Jesus? Or in what ways did he know this himself? Or what had he seen among his fellow Christians? This is is constantly one of the devil's tactics against God's people to produce a self-condemning heart. And John says, listen, brothers and sisters, never forget this. When your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. God is greater than your heart. What does he mean by that? He says, when your heart condemns you, you're not going to find any justification within your heart. You're only going to find justification and release in this knowledge that God justifies the ungodly because of Jesus Christ. And He is greater than your heart. And you see the problem? The problem is we listen to our hearts. And John is saying, no, you need to listen to God. When the voice of your own heart is more clearly heard or sounds louder than the voice of God, then I'm in deep trouble. He's saying, remember that God is greater than your heart. And then, of course, the great thing is that the Bible speaks in a number of different ways of having a clean heart. Remember David in Psalm 51. It's what a, what a thing for him to say. But you see, he says it out of a sense of a self-condemning heart. He's sinned. Uh, he's, he's, um, he has no right to the Holy Spirit. He has no right to forgiveness. There are not sacrifices in the Old Testament system that are built to provide forgiveness for adultery and complicity in murder. But you see, what David is praying in Psalm 51 is, Oh God, I know there isn't a sacrifice that can bring me forgiveness, but I'm praying that you will find me a sacrifice that will bring me forgiveness. And of course it came in his greater Son, and because he had some sense, because of the promise that God was going to provide a Savior, he was, he was able, as it were, to reach forward by faith to the fulfillment of the promise that God had given down through the centuries and say, Lord, on the basis of the forgiveness that you have promised to bring to us and the deliverance, oh God, create a new and clean heart within me. And then I will be able to teach other transgressors your ways. And uh, this, is the, this is the wonder of the gospel, isn't it? Uh, we sometimes sing about it all oh, for a heart to praise my God. Um, a heart cleansed and it's given to us by the Spirit in our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that's what Scripture means by the heart. Uh, that's why, because the heart is so central, it's so important to guard the heart. But there's a third thing I want us to notice before we close tonight, and, and that's the, the answer to the question that ought to arise in our minds, well, how do we guard our hearts? And it's interesting, if you look at this verse, Proverbs 4.23, as a kind of uh, center verse in this little section then the verses that precede and the verses that follow are a bit like uh, Aaron and Har holding up the arms of Moses in order that there might be victory over the Amalekites. And so, uh, some of you have heard me say this before, you know, often in the Bible we read the Bible and it tells us what to do and it just frustrates us because it doesn't tell us how to do it. And actually, it rarely seems to tell us how to do it. And so we go off to the Christian bookstore and we ask, is there a book that tells me how to do it? Instead of keeping our noses down in the passage, because almost invariably in the passage, God already gives us indications as to how to do it. So how do I keep my heart? Well, in the verses that precede verse 23, what's he saying? This is the Father. He knows Deuteronomy 6, that he's to take God's word and give it to his children. We guard the heart, first of all, by, by having a balanced diet of God's word, don't we? And, and we've seen this. This is what the Father is doing. Remember how Jesus himself experienced this, so much so that he said when he was tempted, Man is not meant to live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So, how do we do it? First of all, be attentive to God's words. Be attentive. How how attentive are you to God's words? I don't mean how often do you read the Bible, but how attentive are you to the Bible? Be attentive to my words Incline your ear to my sayings. Listen. Listen. And then he says, keep them always in view. It's so interesting, isn't it? Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. Think back to Genesis chapter 3. What had God said in Genesis chapter 2? Okay, all of these trees are yours, all of them. The, the fruit is terrific and they look great. That one. Let's call it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That one I I don't want you to I don't I do not want you to eat the fruit of that tree. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. I know it looks good and the fruit looks delicious. But I'm telling you not to eat the fruit of that tree because I want you to grow in obedience to me just because you love me and because I'm your father. And what happens? Well, those words were not kept before their eyes, were they? Um, it was what they saw that was more important. It was, it was what captured their they taste buds. It was, we are a wee bit hungry. Uh, and, and what happened? They didn't keep the Word of God before their eyes. If you go through all the big temptations in the Bible, all the big temptations in the Bible where you've got a whole story lying about the temptation, you will see, I think, at every single instance, the crucial point is they didn't keep the word of God before their eyes. And uh, it's, you know, it's one of the sad things that the, the Christian pollsters tell us today. That one of the big problems in the evangelical church is that the reason, they don't put it this way, I'm putting it this way. The reason Christians don't keep the word of God before their eyes is they know so little of that word. To enable them to keep it before their eyes. But what great instruction this is for us. Because the word of God will be our guard. As we get it into our hearts. So this is what the cardiologist says to you. Doesn't he? I mean your family doctor says to you. Your diet is important. That is to say not going on a diet although that may be important. But what you put in is always going to be important. What you put in. And the same is true of the heart in the sense of the hidden person. You are. Um, you, You are what you eat. Some of you are too young to remember that great slogan. You are what you eat. It becomes part of you. And the same is true Spurgeon says on a famous occasion about John Bunyan you know, the thing about Bunyan is if you pricked him anyway, anywhere he would bleed bibline because the word of God was so it before his eyes and what goes with diet exercise and that's the second half. You notice when you get past verse 23, it's all about exercise. And you'll notice where the exercise is, the exercises in what you say with your mouth. Because this is an interesting thing. It is true that it's not what uh, goes into your mouth that, uh, that's going to defile you in terms of food. Um, But how you use your mouth, you know, if you don't don't have that, exercising my mouth in accordance with God's Word, then it will run away from you and then it will begin to shape your personality. Let's give you a little illustration of this. You say something foolish and you're too embarrassed to take it back. And one thing leads to another, and that other thing leads to a whole pattern in your existence of the way you speak. So if you're going to guard your heart, you need also to guard your mouth. And if you're going to guard your heart, then notice verse 25, you need to guard your eyes. Um, You know, this is demeaned as old-fashioned now, isn't it? Uh, guard your eyes it's okay for me to watch these things yeah I know the Victorians who the Victorians were I know they would have been horrified but we are way beyond them they were stupid Victorians Um, what goes into your eyes captures your heart that's the truth of the matter what goes into your eyes captures your heart And so what you do with your eyes, what you look at with your your eyes, is going to have an influence on your heart. Unlike your body, your eyes are directly connected to your heart. Just as your mouth is directly connected to your heart. And then in verse 22, your feet are directly connected to your heart. And he's not just speaking about your feet size 10 or hopefully for some of you only size 6. It's this, ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. What is he saying? He's saying, make sure that when you look down at your feet, you see the destination of the direction in which they're headed. My experience in in pastoral ministry, in, in lives that have been made shipwreck, is the number of times people have said to me, I never imagined this would happen. Why did they not imagine it when they had deliberately planted their feet in a way that was heading in that direction? Because, well, I'll be strong. Others aren't strong. But I'll, I'll only let it go so far. I'm in complete control of this. No, the Scriptures are constantly saying to us, you need to look at present activity in the light of its future destination. And in this way, through, through gate and through mouth gate, and through uh, ear gate, he's saying actually earlier on, and through foot gate, we learn to guard our hearts. Now, before we finish, there's one thing I want to point out to you here. Um, And at first sight, it may seem a little bit technical, but it's actually very interesting. When he says in verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, He's using two different terms that mean keeping and guarding. And the interesting thing is that the one that's translated here, all vigilance, is is the root that's used by Moses when he describes the task of the priest. The priest's task is to is to watch over, to guard, to protect the sanctuary. Just hold that thought. Because it's exactly the same verb that's used by Moses in Genesis chapter 2 when he says that God put Adam in the Garden of Eden to keep it. And it looks as though Moses is saying, just as, the, just as the priests in the days of the Exodus had this task of, of guarding the temple, so God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as a temple. It was, it was, as it were, the one place on earth where God especially came to meet with them. And they were to, Adam was to guard it. And of course, He failed which was the reason the tabernacle was needed, which was the reason the temple was important, which is the reason that the New Testament speaks to us about our body being the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul, you remember, prays in Ephesians that Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith. And that's ultimately the reason we guard our hearts, not just to protect us from going astray spiritually, but because if we're Christians, that's where Christ dwells by the Holy Spirit, in our hearts. And when we see that, we'll want to do everything God gives us grace and power to do, to guard our hearts. Let me put it this way. One of the great Christians, whose name eludes me at the moment, once said, how precious is the blood of Jesus Christ? Is it not so precious that if you were given a small bowl of the blood of Jesus Christ, you would so treat that small bowl as to make sure you never spilt a drop of it so precious as the blood of Christ you'll never be given a bowl of the blood of Jesus Christ but you've been given something much greater if you're a believer you've been given Christ himself by the Holy Spirit to dwell in your heart and if you would guard a bowl of his blood then You have all the motivation you need and the knowledge that Christ dwells in you by the Holy Spirit to make this word your own word and guard your heart. Not only because out of it come the issues of life, but because into it has come the Lord of glory. And that's one of the reasons you want to keep it clean. That's one of the reasons you want to have nothing but devotion to Him. In your heart. Um, When I was, uh, if I was not a teenager, I was barely out of my teens. Uh, I probably was because I was in love. It's not that you can't be in love when you're in your teens. I actually was in love when I was in my teens, but it was out of my teens before it was obvious to all. And William Still said to me one day, Sinclair, he said, make sure make sure that you keep a sanctuary in your heart for the Lord Jesus, so hermetically sealed that nothing and no one will ever invade his space, not even Dorothy. That's my wife. And you need to do that too, don't you? For Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we thank you. For the wonders of the gospel. For this amazing. Wonder to us. That Christ who. Is the Lord of glory. That Christ who. Came as a baby. In Bethlehem. Now as though we were. The manger in the stable. Comes by his spirit. To dwell in. In our hearts through faith. We want to respond to you by keeping our hearts and to to pray for one another that you will enable us to do this and enable us to encourage one another in this way. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: We're going to respond to God's Word by singing the song, As the Deer uh, Pants for the Water. So my soul longs after you, you alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship you. Let's stand and sing this to God's praise, and please remain standing for the benediction. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.